Hey, yeah. There's a statue I'm very fond of down on the quayside in Hobart. It features a young man and a dog among some crates facing a box camera on a tripod. The statue commemorates Belgian-born local Louis Charles Bernacki, astronomer and physicist on the first expedition to spend a winter on the Antarctic continent, and rightly so, because Bernacki emerges from the history of exploration as a rigorous scientist and competent traveller, with a sound understanding of what makes people tick. His competence stands him in stark contrast to the man he followed to Antarctica, with Karsten Borkrevink, one of the small number of figures in the lead in the I really wouldn't want to spend any time in close quarters with that idiot, stakes. Karsten Egberg Borkrevink wasn't shy about giving himself props for the achievements of Bull's expedition. Everywhere he went, he made it clear that he did all the work, first at all the firsts, and would have done more but for the meddlesome interference of his hopeless leader and crewmates. Touting his awesomeness at the expense of people with some credibility made Borkrevink stand out as a bit of a douche in the arena of championship humility that was Victorian London. But his boisterous enthusiasm to return south and perform further feats of awesomeitude garnered enough grudging respect from influential people that Mr. C. E. Borkrevink got introduced to some heavy hitters in terms of potential funding. Among them, George Nunes. Movable type, in use in various forms for almost a thousand years at this point in history, didn't impact lives much outside of rulers and clerics until the masses learnt to read. Once they did, their appetite for the written word made many fortunes among those able to put ink to paper, and Sir George Nunes did exactly that with his penny magazines, most notably Titbits, which, in spite of your prurient mind, actually comprised weekly anthologies of short stories and extracts of books. George Nunes kicked off the magazine and withered his publishing empire by, of all things, starting a vegetarian restaurant in Manchester. I've been to Manchester and know that vegetarians aren't that city's major import or export, even in these crunchy granola times, let alone in the late 19th century. But the gamble paid off and the magazine ran until 1989, publishing material by Isaac Asimov, H. Ryder Haggard and giving P.G. Woodhouse his first comic outing back in 1900. Another magazine in the Nunes stable, The Strand, offered the world the first glimpse of Arthur Conan Doyle's character, Sherlock Holmes. Borkrevink, touting that his would constitute the first expedition to winter on the Antarctic continent, casually dropped mention that his team would attempt to reach the magnetic and south poles, and let slip the entirely unsupported notion that he looked forward to making contact with native Antarcticans. His boastful statements attracted £40,000 in funding from George Noon's fortune on the idea that exclusive reports of the adventure would increase circulation of his magazines. Paying the bills meant George Noon's got a lot of say in the branding of the expedition, and he decided the name British Antarctic Expedition would best serve his publishing needs. Borkrevink used Noon's money to purchase an ice-strengthened 230-tonne Norwegian whaler. Notice a pattern here? The ship Pollux was built by Colin Archer. Archer, born in Scotland, became one of Norway's most notable shipwrights of the era, and a minor digression is warranted here to discuss another of his projects, the Fram. Fram is Norwegian for forward, a name chosen by Fritjof Nansen who commissioned Archer to build a schooner of unusual proportions, having a very wide beam and very shallow draft. 
While this made the Fram unstable around its longitudinal axis, causing it to roll more than most ships of its size when sailing in open waters, it allowed the Fram to rise above encroaching ice flows that would pinch and crush more conventionally constructed ships. Nansen, Norway's polymath, was an explorer, scientist and diplomat whose humanitarian work would later earn a Nobel Peace Prize. In 1893, he and a crew of 12 sailed the Fram to the New Siberian Islands north of Russia and allowed themselves to be iced in. The then 20-year-old Roald Amundsen numbered among the thousands of Norwegians who applied to join the expedition, but his mother intervened to prevent his going. Frederick Jackson, whose Arctic antics would influence future Antarctic expeditions, also applied, but Nansen wanted a fully Norwegian crew and refused Jackson a berth. The Fram did as designed, rising lightly atop the flows as the ice pressed in against her flanks, and the crew settled down to their scientific programs as the drifting ice carried them with it in a very energy-efficient shot at the North Pole. In 1881, an American ship, the Jeannette, was wrecked in the ice north of Siberia. Three years later, the wreckage turned up in Greenland, demonstrating the Arctic ice as highly mobile with a net east-to-west movement. Nansen intended using this free ride among the ice flows to carry the expedition north, but the movement wasn't as straightforward as anticipated. After six weeks, the ship lay further south than they started, following several random gyrations. The ice did carry the ship north eventually, but after 18 months, Nansen realised the Fram would miss the pole by several hundred nautical miles, and began preparing for a sledge journey. Early attempts to work dog teams turned into embarrassing farces, but practice led to progress, and an efficient combination of dogs, sledges and skis was devised. Nansen and Hjalmar Johansen left the ship under the command of Otto Sverdrup and headed north with 28 Samoyed dogs. They made good daily mileage, but realised the southerly drift of the ice reduced their progress to the point they would run out of food before reaching the pole. They reached a northern record of 86 degrees, 13.5 minutes north, before turning for Franz Joseph Land. The pair shot the weakest dogs to feed those still pulling the progressively lightening sledges, but the northern winter forced a halt. A shelter, no more than a hole in the snow, became their home for eight months until conditions once again allowed travel. Nansen and Johansen reached land and met another human, Frederick Jackson, as it happens, after 15 months on their own. The Fram drifted on until the ice released its hold somewhere near Spitsbergen, after almost three years out of the water. Sverdrup sailed south to Tromsø, where a very relieved Nansen rejoined the expeditioners as quickly as he could. After this and his previous expeditions in Greenland, Nansen became known as the man to consult in all matters of polar exploration, and shared his expertise without reserve, furnishing many Antarctic forays with sound advice, which some heeded and some ignored. He also shared the Fram, which will feature prominently in future episodes of Ice Coffee. The Fram is now preserved in a museum in Oslo. Just looking at her beamy lines and shallow keel is enough to make me seasick. If the inkling of familiarity I get from pictures of the young Nansen's penetrating gaze in portraits from the era has any validity, he went on to see attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion 
and watch sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. Being a replicant might help explain how Nansen came to be as hard as frickin' nails as he clearly was. Borkrevink renamed the Pollocks the Southern Cross, and placed Bernhard Jensen, who had been second mate under Leonard Christensen aboard the Antarctic during Bull's expedition, in command. William Colbeck of the Royal Navy Reserve came aboard as navigator, cartographer and magnetician. Norwegian zoologist Nikolai Hansen, British assistant zoologist Hugh Blackwell Evans, and Belgian-born Australian physicist Louis Bernacki rounded out the scientific contingent. Bernacki's father advised his son to stay in his job at the Melbourne Observatory, but the youngster was keen for adventure. His earlier, unsuccessful attempt to join the Belgica, in hindsight something of a boon, tipped him into Borkrevink's path, which in hindsight served as something of an unboon. Heeding successes using dog-powered sledges in the north, Borkrevink also shipped 75 Samoyed sled dogs and two Sami, Ol Must and Per Sevio, who knew how to work with them, making the BAE the first expedition to take dogs to the Antarctic as part of their transport plans. Clements Markham felt incensed that Borkrevink soaked up private money that might have served the Royal Geographic Society expedition. That Borkrevink was a foreigner and a schoolmaster caused lots of distress, but less so than that Clements Markham wasn't being listened to. Markham advised all RGS members to have nothing to do with the project. RGS librarian, Hugh Robert Mill, quoted in episode 23 as respecting Borkrevink's enthusiasm and directness, recounted in his autobiography that Clements Markham exhorted that they have nothing to do with the BAE because of its incompetent leader, its rotten ship, and the money it removed from more laudable projects. This didn't stop Mill announcing in an address to the expedition and the large audience attending its departure at a luncheon put on by George Nunes that the BAE reflected the greatest credit on the human races as a whole, describing the need for the expedition as a real disgrace that there should be any part of this ridiculously small earth of ours upon which no one had ever set foot or had even tried to tread. The Southern Cross departed London on the 23rd of August, 1898, on a wave of Nunes-mediated publicity, the first Antarctic expedition to receive such hype. They reached Hobart on the 28th of November and sailed south from there on the 19th of December. It took the BAE a record 43 days to traverse to near Cape Adair in the worst summer pack ice any expedition encountered in the Ross Sea region to that point. Bernhard Jensen thought they sighted new land, which he named after Nunes, but it turned out to be the Balleny Islands, which Bernacki described as follows. One sight in bad weather of that sinister coast is enough to make a landsman dream for weeks of shipwrecks, perils and death. I can imagine no greater punishment than to be left alone to live forgotten and die forlorn on that desolate shore. The Southern Cross became trapped in the pack for two weeks, but the crew managed to extricate her before the flows set fast, thereby avoiding replicating the ice-beset drama playing out aboard the Belgica on the other side of the continent. In a sequence that tickles my tastes for taxidermy, particularly really bad examples of taxidermy, the crew killed and stuffed a penguin they encountered on the ice floes. This mounted specimen was later lowered onto the ice in an attempt to tempt other specimens closer to the ship, 
but the birds in question turned their backs and departed with an air of infinite sadness. I like to imagine this being an expression of disdain for really, really bad taxidermy. Yeah, kill and skin our mates, but at least get someone who can make a half-decent armature if you're expecting us to buy that that's still Greg. The ship arrived in Robertson's Bay, the body of water sheltered to the east by the northwestern curl of Cape Adair itself, on the 17th of February, 1899. Bernacki once again felt the barrenness keenly. Approaching this sinister coast for the first time, on such a boisterous, cold and gloomy day, our decks covered with drift snow and frozen seawater, the rigging encased in ice, the heavens as black as death, was like approaching some unknown land of punishment, and struck into our hearts a feeling preciously akin to fear. It was a scene, terrible in its austerity, that can only be witnessed at that extremity of the globe, truly a land of unsurpassed desolation. Borkrevink selected Cape Adair because his previous visit gave assurance that landings were practicable, but little else about its geography recommended the site. Surrounded by the steep Admiralty Mountains, Cape Adair offered no access to the continent's interior, and even the sheltered anchorage of Robertson's Bay afforded no protection from the storms that dragged the unloading process out to ten days. During a particularly strong blow, lasting three days, the Southern Cross was forced to work at full steam just to maintain position against strong winds that would otherwise have put her aground, while Bernacki, the two Sami, and four of the Norwegians were marooned ashore. They managed to erect a tent and, with the dogs piled in on top of the miserable men, narrowly avoided freezing to death until the storm blew itself out and unloading could recommence. Please stop snickering. The crew erected a pair of prefabricated huts made of interlocking logs of Norwegian pine, the first human erections on the continent. Well, just... just stop. What are you, twelve? You're taking neurolinguistic programming in new directions, and it's just childish. Borkrevink named the site Camp Ridley after his mother, whose name must have been Camp, I guess, and hoisted the large Union flag donated by the Duke of York. In spite of his presence at Cape Adair in early 1895, when the Norwegian flag flew in wooden box form, Borkrevink, likely thinking carefully about which side his big fat cheque was butted on, claimed this event as the first flag raising on the Antarctic continent. Bernacki photographed the scene, making the first exposure of frickin' stop giggling! Borkrevink, in charge of a mixed nation crew and holding no mandate to claim territory on behalf of Britain, never commented on the ownership or sovereignty of his camp. George Nunes provided a large number of smaller Union flags, the Winter Party deposited all over the small territory they could access from the beaches at Cape Adair, but at this end of the historical telescope, the effort appears more a case of vexillologist littering than littoral territoriality. The Southern Cross departed for New Zealand on the 2nd of March, leaving a party of 10 ashore. The science program kicked off with geological samples taken at every accessible site. The George Nunes and George Murray glaciers received their names. Sponsorship has its privileges. And rock samples taken between the two glaciers suggested to Bernacki a high degree of similarity between the structures on that stretch of Antarctic coast and those forming the coast of southern Australia. 
two hourly time series of magnetic and meteorological readings kicked off and ran through the winter. Samples of everything biological, primarily birds, fish, seals and algae, were collected and stored. The one avenue the expedition could not explore, pun intended, fully, in spite of their ambitions and equipment, was geography. The limits placed on their movements by the sea and surrounding mountains meant very little surveying work was accomplished. On climbing a substantial mountain, Bernacki realised how little could be achieved from Cape Adair on seeing the endless string of snowy peaks disappearing into the distance. The sun set for the last time that winter on May the 17th, not returning again to Camp Ridley for two months. During the dark, sluggish months spent mostly in the two huts, the toastiness set in. Pulses slowed and tempers frayed. A fire, started by a candle, came close to burning one of the huts down, but the biggest problem the shore party faced through the winter came from their leader's increasingly erratic behaviour. Borkrevink became paranoid. Every slightest disagreement magnified in his mind to become incipient mutiny, and his attempts to maintain his dominance over the expedition became more strident as the months passed. At a particularly low ebb in relations, Borkrevink published a set of standing orders he pinned to the wall, stating, The following things will be considered mutiny. To oppose C.E.B. or induce others to do so. To speak ill of C.E.B. To ridicule Mr. C.E.B. or his work. To try to force C.E.B. to alter contracts. That couldn't read to me as any more insane if every element of it ended with five exclamation marks. If someone you've trusted to lead you in challenging circumstances attempts to publish retroactive mandates of this kind when you're already waist-deep in those challenging circumstances, I strongly advise that you immediately mutiny by locking them in the laundry brig and keeping all sharp objects out of reach. Members of the BAE didn't mutiny, though, muddling on through their duties and taking the opportunities offered by the returning sun to take sledge journeys the hell away from Camp Ridley, across the sea ice to the west. On one such journey, members of the BAE discovered and named Duke of York Island, before a blizzard caught them up and forced a three-day hunkering down in their tent. One of the Sami dog handlers fell down a crevasse, but in a Nansen-like move of hardness, used their knife to cut toeholds in the crevasse walls and extricate themselves. Back at the huts, at the end of August... A shift in the wind caused a stove to blow its fumes into the hut instead of out of it. Hansen, Benaki and Elifson were very nearly asphyxiated. Carbon monoxide poisoning isn't a first anyone wants, but the BAE narrowly avoided adding it to their list of achievements when Nikolai Hansen woke up enough to request that the door be opened. Hansen, the expedition zoologist, had a pretty rough time of it. Ill since late July, his health deteriorated steadily through the following months. Accounts vary as to what he actually suffered from, with authors citing scurvy, beriberi, and intestinal occlusion. Whatever it was, it killed Hansen on the 14th of October. The crew, in attempting to fulfil Hansen's request that he be buried on the ridge overlooking Cape Adair, struggled for two days to dig a grave in the hard rock. Dynamite did what pick and shovel could not, and Hansen was buried, wrapped in a Norwegian flag. They marked the site with a cross 
and an inscribed brass plate. Another first no one really wanted. The first grave on the continent. The nine remaining BAE members carried on with what work they could, but became emotionally fraught through the first month of the new century, waiting for the Southern Cross to return. Being the first shore party in Antarctica, this is the first time our narrative encounters this phenomenon. Until radios became standard base equipment, no one ashore could know what conditions and problems a ship faced in trying to collect them, and the thought of spending an additional winter ashore weighed heavily on the minds of the BAE, as it would on many subsequent shore teams. On the 28th of January, the denizens of Camp Ridley awoke to Captain Jensen's jaunty knocking and calls of POST to their great relief. Happy to be leaving, the shore party packed the huts well, leaving them in good order and well stocked with food and coal, the first shore depot in Antarctica. The Southern Cross left Robertson's Bay on the 2nd of February and entered the Ross Sea, Borkrevink being eager to make more of a stamp on the region than the limited scientific findings and firsts achieved at Cape Adair constituted. Landings made at Possession Island, Coolman Island, Mount Melbourne and Mount Terror allowed for minor geologising but almost cost Jensen and Borkrevink their lives when a wave from a carving iceberg swept the shoreline as they traversed it. They sailed to the Ross Ice Barrier, by then lying 30 nautical miles further south than in Ross's day. Bernacki and Colbeck climbed the barrier and reported an endless flat vista of ice receding to the horizon. In mid-February, two dog teams took sledges out across the landmark-free expanse to set a new southernmost record of 78 degrees 58 minutes south. Only an improvement over Ross and Crozier's record by 50 nautical miles, and less half of these by sledge, this effort only served to stamp the Borkrevink name on the record, with no geographic findings arising from the outing. Too late in the austral summer to risk trying to do more, the Southern Cross left the ice barrier and sailed back to Franklin Island, now known as Ross Island, where new magnetic measurements suggested the southern magnetic pole lay further north and west than previously estimated. Keep in mind that the magnetic poles are constantly on the move. The Southern Cross crossed the circle on the 28th of February and sailed on to New Zealand, reaching Stewart Island on the 31st of March. The Boer War, kicking off in their absence, saw Britain and her colonies focus their attention on the Transvaal, so the return of the BAE raised less interest than Borkrevink felt happy about. In a further blow to the hoped-for notoriety and laurels, Clements Markham was busily laying the groundwork for what would become the Discovery Expedition under Robert Falcon Scott, and making a lot of noise about it in the papers and lecture theatres. Borkrevink found himself snubbed by many he'd hoped would welcome him back to London a significant blow to someone as driven by headlines and as bored by science as he. While the Royal Geographic Society made him a fellow, King Olaf of Norway knighted him, and he made many lectures in England, Scotland and the USA. Borkrevink felt hard done by, robbed of the plaudits he felt the world owed him. His book, First on the Antarctic Continent, poorly written and similarly received, sealed the deal. Borkrevink was washed up. He never went south again. 
the Royal Geographic Society attitude to Borkraving changed after the Eastern Party of Scott's 1911-1914 expedition spent a winter ashore at Cape Adair. In light of the difficulties experienced by Victor Campbell and his party of five in surveying, science and survival at Cape Adair, the BAE's achievements were reassessed. In 1930, Borkrevink received the Royal Geographical Society's Patrons Medal. Carsten Borkrevink died in Norway in 1934. Louis Benaki wrote his own account of the first winter ashore to the South Polar Regions, expedition of 1898 to 1900. He speculated that the paucity of terrestrial flora meant Antarctica must lack populations of large animals. He wrote the region off as unprofitable for any endeavour other than scientific investigation, incorrectly assuming the local whale populations extinct based on his own shore-based failure to observe any during his time at Cape Adair. Benaki's granddaughter later edited and published his diaries under the title The First Antarctic Winter, the story of the Southern Cross Expedition of 1898-1900. to Benaki went on to further adventures and will feature again in Ice Coffee as part of the Discovery Expedition. The BAE, in addition to its list of firsts, contributed magnetic, meteorological and geological data to our picture of Antarctica and demonstrated the practical advantages and challenges of shore bases, thereby marking a significant shift from ship-based running reconnaissance missions to geographically rooted observation series in our attempts to describe and understand Antarctica. I'll give the last word to Bernacki, in whose book Antarctica was described as enveloped in an atmosphere of universal death. Cheer up, emo kid. <laughs>